seconds high. Nice build up with White to the CQs. Brown would have a lot of work to do, but he's holding it up well. This is White. Good try! Oh, what a net bulger! What a goal! His 72 goals make Paul Wright one of the most prolific strikers in Kilmarnock Football Club's modern history. In episode 15 of Kelly Histories, Paul looks back at the challenging start he faced and the six years of success he enjoyed in Ayrshire. I'm Gordon Gillen, and this is Paul Wright. Let's start with a familiar face, and it's Alex Totten. He signed you for three different clubs, and you scored a lot of goals when you worked with him. Was there anything in particular that made that relationship so successful? You get managers that are players' managers that know sort of players' strengths and weaknesses. I know every manager should know that, but with him, he seemed to know, you know, especially with myself, he knew how to work me. He knew what right buttons to push. He used to actually leave you, but the experienced players, he used to leave you sort of to your own devices. He trusted the way that you played. And when I first when I first met Alec, I way back in the years gone by, 1991, when he signed me at St Johnston, I got on really well with him at that time. And we'd always kept in contact ever since when Alec moved on for St Johnston and stuff like that, and I was still there. But we always kept in contact. We always managed to get, have a phone call at Christmas or how you getting on, how you doing, how's things. And he was one of the first people, when I'd done my cruciate at St Johnston, he was one of the first people on the phone to me to see how I was. And it's a relationship like that that still sort of confidence in you. Alec was on the phone and said to me, like, we're looking for a striker. Are you fit? Are you back fit? Yeah, I'm back fit. So when I knew... A manager had that much faith in you. I decided then, yeah, I need to go back and play for the man. It's trust. It's more than anything. It's trust. Trust in your ability and trust in you as a person more than anything else. And then the partnership just started to work again. And that, that was the main thing. Is it the case then that Kilmarnock were quite lucky to be able to pick you up? Because I know that there was a, quite a few seasons of a lot of goals at St Johnston. And then there was one yeah. season when it wasn't as many goals. I done my, my, my cruciate ligament uh 1993. I got the operation in February 4th, 1993, I think, 1994, I think it was. Been doing really well. I scored that many goals. A lot of clubs were coming in chasing me. And then all of a sudden, when a football player's doing well, these things sort of creep up. Injuries. I'd never, ever had an injury in my life. And then I got this serious injury. I'd done my cruciate. I was out for nearly a year. And I just came back. I no longer came back. And I found it tough to get back into St Johnston's side under Paul Sturrock, who was a fantastic coach. And don't get me wrong, they looked after me. St Johnston was fantastic. They looked after me when I was out and everything. But when I came back, it takes you that long to get back to your match fitness. And so when I, I really signed for Kilmarnock, I was struggling for match fitness. I'd hardly played any games in a year and a half. Even though they the Kilmarnock had shelled out big money for me, and Alex faith in me, that's why I had a really, really slow start, because it wasn't fit enough. I played in the last six, it was the last six games of the, the 95 season, 96 season. It was very, very tough for me. I'd been used to moving from team to team, I mean, through my career, but 
I was always fit enough when I that signed for a team. This was the very first time I wasn't fit enough. And I remember the, the debut up in Aberdeen when Mark Skillen scored with 1-0. And on that day, the, again, it's another game that passed me by because I wasn't fit enough. And I remember giving the ball away and doing this and doing that. But it was the team that rallied around me, you know what I mean, and got, and got through and got the result. And the next five games after that was about building up match fitness. And I, and I got to the stage that I was getting in the, the correct positions. But the luck wasn't with me at the time. I was getting fitter, I was getting better. Just then at the end of the season, I managed to get my first goal in the very last game of the season against Hibs that season. And that, that took a wee bit of weight off my shoulders. That would have been a big moment for you getting that goal. Oh, definitely. I remember the week before against Party Tissel, I think I hit the post and hit the bar. The other ones were being kicked off the line. It was all different things that were culminating. And as a football player, you're brought in for big money. Don't be wrong, the fans are expecting an instant reaction. But they don't know the, the background of what, what was going on. And Alex said that to me. He says, don't worry about the, the last six games. We'll get you through them. We'll get you pre-season. And then we'll get you firing again at the start of the next season. And man, just get faith in yourself. Again, it goes back to the trust part. You always had somebody who had your, the biggest thing you, you always had was the backing of your manager. If you get the backing of your manager, then then you know that fine well. And one other person had was a major influence on me at the very beginning at Kamala. It was my strike partner. Tom Brown. Tom Brown was the one that used to keep me going, G me up, keep me going, keep me going. Do you know what I mean? He says, oh, come, oh, come, this or that, you're getting better. We know you're a player, we can see you're a player, we've played against you before. And just a wee thing like that, your strike partner, was the, he was the one that was just keeping me going at the very early stages of my career at Kamama. Tom didn't need to do that because I was a sort of rival to his position. But Tom, he's just the type of person he was. That's the kind of guy that he was, how much he helped me along. Was Tom Brown quite a strong influence in the dressing room generally? And generally, he was just a nice guy. That's just the way he was. Tom, Tom was just a nice boy, and it's just that reaction, you know, when you get off of your, your fellow strike partner, you know what I mean. And as you would do with him days, it's like with Jimmy Mack came in, I, I helped him at the beginning, you know what I mean. So you do these kind of things, but but it's a wee thing that never ever left me. Uh, all the time, every time when I see Tom, I always mention it to him. You never ever forget things like that and gestures like that, that players don't need to do. You've got to take influence for your fellow pros that are with you. Even though I was the one that was brought in for big money and Tom had came through, maybe came the other way through the junior ranks. But mm-hmm. it still goes to show your two years are teammates, and so you help each other along. That's as we had a couple of years together, I remember. We went to play Rangers at Ibrox, and the two were, we were actually called the Bowsers for Malachia, you know, <laughs> against Richard Goff, and, and I can't remember who else was in the back four. And that, that was our nickname, the Bowsers, because the two went very tall. But I'll say one thing the worth ethic the, the two had was really, really good, and the understanding they had was really good. But as I said, you know, they, they were the early days at Kamarnock. Bouncers, I like it. <laughs> I've never heard that before. The Bouncers for Malachia. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that was our nickname. That, that was that. that I think it was a, the correspondent in the Sunday Mail. That was he wrote down the bouncers for Mothercare. That was a line that always stood with me as a player. So there you go. Paul, can I ask just a little bit more on joining Kilmarnock at the time? And specifically talking now, now I was going to talk about joining mid-season, but it seems to be obviously the, the injury playing a part. I was going to ask you yeah. if joining a team midway through a season is a disadvantage because you joined in the March of that season. But would it maybe is it possible that it was maybe an advantage because it allowed you to get a few games of fitness? Advantage. The other thing is as well, 
I really liked the dramatic, the, the very last sign in the deadline day for big money. It gave the, the, the club a bit, a bit more profile, and I like, like to do dramatic things like that. But it gave me the time to, to bed in with the players. It gave me time to get to know each other more than anything else. And the way the style of play that Kamarnock played, because they, they, they like to play as Alex teams were, they're open, expansive football, and they like to attack teams. And that goes for, like, for maybe not. It's great for the defensive side of the game for a team, but for strikers in general. You know what I mean? It was great for myself. You always knew the team's going to create opportunities, but you've got to get used to playing it. Provincial clubs, when they play the old firm, they've got to sit in. But when they go and play each other, everybody's out to win games. That's what football's mostly all about anyway. Kilmarnock were a team that never, ever sat in, and they were never, never negative. And that was a great thing about it. I'd sometimes wonder, when you join a new club, and it's that first day of... Well, for for you it wasn't pre-season training with Kilmarnock, but you joined that first that first training session. Are you nervous? I mean, you would have had Kevin McGowan, I guess, and and Steve Maskery that you would have known from St Johnston. Did that help at all? Well, when when I when I went there, it was Stevie was the one who was there. Uh, Kevin came after me. There was Stevie then myself. So yeah, you tie into people. You know what I mean? Yeah, you talk away to people. The very first game, as I said, was away in Aberdeen. So you you were actually away the night before. So the team had actually went up. The day before, well, the team goes up the night before up to Aberdeen to stay overnight, but the bus had already been away. So by the time we'd done the deal, Alec had to take me up. But as soon as we went up there, there was a place for me for dinner, well, next day, a few people for dinner, and I shared the room with Rab Geddes. But I sort of knew through the years as playing against players, you know, you get to know people as you play against people. And so once, you, once you've done that, people know who you are anyway through the years of, as I said, playing against each other. And you get, and people know you on and off the park. And we, we Stevie, we Stevie was only a year with me. I think it's in Johnston, and uh, and then he'd moved on. But I knew, I knew Stevie, and I knew a few of them. It's hard to gel at the very beginning. It's like you, you move any work in any work of life. It takes a little bit of time to to gel with people in bed, and and people get to to know your characteristics. As you go into a club, you just keep your head down for the first six weeks or, or two months to you find out, you know, the lie of the land. And, and any other part, any other job and any other work of life, people will do the exact same. You make friends, you bond, and that's just the way of life. But when I joined, the boys were great to me. They welcomed me in with open arms. You'd have a reputation of being a top Premier League goal scorer, though. I'm sure they would have been good with you either way. But did you get a feeling I mean, that people thought, yeah, we're getting a good player here? Uh, it depends. It depends. I remember Big Neil Whitworth telling a story, and I used to travel with Big Neil for three years. Myself, Neil Collin, Mark Riley, and Jim Lachlan we all travelled in the same car for three years. And Neil Whitworth didn't had no clue who the hell I was. I mean, because Neil Whitworth was down in England. Yeah. You know I mean with Manchester United, and he tells a story. He tells a story when who's the wee fat guy who signed for St Johnston. <laughs> <laughs> So there you go, you know, we saw it's not everybody knows you, but Big White was fantastic he tells, when he tells you the story. It's just one of these things, not everybody recognises you, but you've still got to win, no matter what you've done in the past with other teams, you've got to do it with the team that you're with and do it with your peers that you're playing with week in, week out. As I mentioned probably later on, you've got to do your job for the team. They're expecting you to do your job and that's what you're brought in for. One more question on introduction and that initial spell, and this is something I wouldn't, I wasn't going to ask, but now that you've mentioned in terms of the injury, because eighteen months is a long time. Did you ever have any doubt in yourself? Well, when you're told the night before when the nurse is sitting, when I, I was in Murrayfield Hospital in Edinburgh, get it done, and and the nurse comes in the night before, 
And when the nurse comes in the night before and said to, and said to you, have you anything to fall back on if it doesn't work? So then the reality kicks in the night before because all I knew was football. And so then you're turning, your, your, your mind's racing the night before. So after the operation was done, I felt, I said to myself, well, there's only one way back and you've got to get yourself back because I had a young family at the time. So if, you, if you've got a young family, like, as you've got yourself, mm-hmm. and now you've got to get yourself sort of to be the breadwinner of the family. And so in your mind, you've got to, any, as I say, any, any father or any husband would do the exact same. You've got to make sure that you get yourself back. Okay, and I felt I never came back. I came back to 90% of the player I was. I was at St Johnston. I was never back 100%. Never. Because it's just a, the length of time that you're out. And the, the matches that you lose, the match fitness you've got to get back, and the injury itself that totally takes on you. You know, and then a lot of folk have went through it once. I know people have went through it twice, which is once is hard enough, but having to go through it twice is, and they've still made it back. Like we Jack will call the Jack will fair play to him. I, I would say I never ever came back to the, the same player I was at I was at St Johnston. I had to manage my game better. That's what I had to do. Nothing against Kilmarnock, but because of the injury, I was a I was a far better player than I was at St Johnston. Plus, you were younger as well. At St Johnston, the legs were better. I wouldn't come back for an injury like that. And move clubs at the same time, no long after you've came back, and all different things, you know what I mean? But as I say as well, back to people still want the goal score. That's what it was all about. If I, if I never scored the goals, I would never get the move. Hibs paid a lot of money for you. St Johnston played yeah. a lot of money for you. And Kilmarnock paid a lot of money for you. Are you the type of character that you just shrug that off? Did, did you think about it? Does it play in your mind no. at all? No, never. No, because it's not, it's not me to put a fee in my head. As I say, the QPR paid the money. Everybody's paid the money for me. I think it's one and a half million now altogether that I cost through the years. But never once did I ever, ever think of the price tag. Never once. As I said, because it's just, I always thought, well, somebody's got to pay the, if somebody's got to pay the money, you must be doing something right. Being out in the pitch for 90 minutes playing every single week, being involved in every single training session. As I say, again, trusting the manager, getting used to the style of play that we, that Kamarnock had played at the time, and enjoying football again. The, the enjoyment part is a big, massive factor of football. If you're, if you're a football player and you're not enjoying playing, you don't get the maximum out yourself. And that was a, that was a big thing that really changed. Plus, once you score a goal or two, the confidence just starts to ooze and you start to just relax on the park. Instead of being tight, you're tense, nervous. Uh, is it going to work for me? Is it not going to work for me? Or this is coming off great. I'll try this thing the next time or I'll do something different. Or oh, that's good. That's working again. And then all of a sudden, you just get back into the mode of, hopefully what you turn around and say to yourself, your talent and your ability just takes over. I'd taken all the penalties everywhere it went and then all of a sudden I, I, I came into Kilmarnock and Tam Black I knew Tom took the penalties you know with the years gone by so it was never it was never a problem but what I used to know was if you were having a hard time a, a penalty would maybe get you back in the goal trip and that was always the reason why I always took the penalties and I always took pride to take penalties you know what I mean so it was Tom Black it took them at the very beginning 
he was an established penalty kick taker. He was established sort of free kick taker. Uh, taker, sorry. You know, what I mean, that was that was that was that was Tom. So that was Tom Black. You know, what I mean, that's the way that's the way that the club had functioned. And he was a great, great deliverer of the ball. Do you know what I mean? So, and you're, you're never going to go in and demand to take the penalties or free, or free kicks or whatever. Take some days been established, and it was, it was a great ratio for free kicking and penalty taking. You know, what I mean, so I don't know, Tom Black to them. One thing you always learn in when you played football was if you people would take the penalties, people would take the free kicks, don't interfere. Because that might put them off. I mean, if you're going to argue over it, if you're going to do this or do that, no. You know what I mean? I just left that alone. It wasn't my place. It was, uh, it was Tom's place to take them. You know what I mean? So I, I never ever asked. Even though you're having a tough time, but you don't interfere in what's the establishment. It wasn't in my remit at the time to go and say, no, I'm taking this or doing that. You've got, to, you've got to be respectful to other players as well. You know I mean, you can't just turn around and go like, no, I want to get us come, having a hard time, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? If Tom Black was to come across and was to maybe offer me to do it, I'd maybe have thought about it, but I was never, ever going to go and see him. Because, as I say, you don't want to put people off. That's yeah. the worst thing you want to do. I've spoken to Tom Black for this series, and mm-hmm. we talked a little bit about 1995-96, but not much. But he'd suggested that because it was kind of an up and down season and there was a spell where the wind started coming and he had said, look, there were a couple of team meetings, the poor form was discussed and then the team went on a bit of a run. Do you have any particular memories about 95, 96 and, and how it might tie in with what Tom was saying? There was a meeting, we had a, we had a meeting, uh, I think we'd went was it four or five games with, I think we'd only got one point out of the first four or five games, uh, or we'd had a point and, we, and we'd a meeting before the game at Partick Thistle. And I think we drew one all that night at Far Hill. And I, I can't remember who scored. I don't know if it was Colin McKay or something. I can't remember who scored the goal that day. But I remember, and that was us getting our sort of first point. And then all of a sudden, I, I brought a bit of confidence to the, the team. And then he started to maybe scraping. Like, I can't remember. We, we, we went a good run after it. But I, I still hadn't been scoring what I would like to have scored it was up to the Christmas period I remember scoring two against Wraith Rovers at home we beat Wraith Rovers 5-1 and then I remember I scored another couple against Partick Thistle just, I think it was just a week before Christmas and that was me I started to go on a roll and the team went on a, it just wasn't just me but the team started to pick points up and the confidence started to come but I remember there was a meeting and it was the first four after the first five games of the season and we were under pressure because I think we had only one with one point after five games or something and it wasn't to be honest with you it wasn't acceptable mm-hmm. I mean we weren't scoring goals up front and we were losing too many at the back they two things if you're not scoring goals and you're conceding too many you're not going to win many games we ended up tightening up at the back and then creating up front and scoring a few goals up front then the season started to turn was it an own goal? Was it, it an own goal? Just shows you. It's a wee bit of luck like that that maybe starts to change things, puts you on a roll. I, I can't remember who we played after. I think we did we play. I can't remember who we played after. It was Hearts at Rugby Park. We won 3 1, didn't we? Yep. Yeah, and that, then it started. Then, then I think there was some. I think we could maybe get. Did we lose a game or two in between uh, after that? It was a, a Hearts. I went home to Hearts. I went at. Yeah. I guess it would be Brockville at that point. The 0-0 with Celtic, and then it was Hibs away, a 2-0 loss, but then it was 5-1 against Wraith Rovers. That was the, the run there. Yeah, then the, the points started to come a wee bit, a wee bit more floating up than anything else, you know what I mean? So the, the team just started to pick up. Any team gets through good spells and bad spells. It was just a bad spell we had at the very start of the season. These things happen in football. 
about season 1996-97. The statistics say that the team was really relying on you in 1996-97 to score the goals. Did you enjoy that position of being so important? I don't feel that you feel that you're, you're important. Like it's back to, again, that you've got a job to do. My, as I says, my job is to put the ball in the back of the net. The more goals that I score, as the team make more chances for me. Yes, I, I'm in the end up, but if the team don't create the chances, I'm not going to score the goal myself. I've got to have people round about me and I've got to have good players coming from the midfield like your John Henry's mm-hmm. and the wings, your Colin McKees, your Mark Riley's in the midfield, your Gary Holtz. I had to have players like that round about me. If I, if I never had players round about me or your Tom Browns or your Jim McIntyre's, the goals don't happen. I'm at the top of the pitch. Yeah, everybody thinks. Strikers, I've got, I've got the glamorous job. Defenders always feel they get the raw end of the stick because you know, they're just defending the goal. And everybody likes to hear about, oh, he scored a goal, or he scored a goal. But at the end of the day, it's your job. And that's that's what, that's what I was paid to do. And that's what I was good at. And that's what I enjoyed doing. I enjoyed that ever since I was a kid, kicking a ball about the streets. I either wanted to be Ken Douglas or I either wanted to be Glenn Hoddle. They were my two idols when I was a kid growing up. And so I always used to like to make sure that I could had a decent pass or create a chance for somebody else or I could finish something and it'd be an end of a cross or a shot or whatever. So I was always, always wanted to be a striker. If you think of a defender, maybe a great people that I look at and who I was brought up with and I was fortunate to play with when I was younger, I look at your, you know, Alec McLeish and your Willie Miller, who I, I was fortunate to play with for six years, and they were the two best defenders that I have ever seen in my life. Mm. They made defending look easy. They weren't flashy. They weren't, I would, what would you say, stand out. They went and they'd done their jobs. And they were the best two defenders that you've ever, ever seen. It was never glamorous being a centre-back, for me personally. It was never glamorous, you know what I mean, to play at the back. I was always wanting to be, as I say, up front to score goals. But the people at the back need to give you a chance to go and score goals by being defensive-minded, which I never was defensive-minded. And these people have got a defenders and art. Defending's been t- an art in which he's been taken out of the game in, the, in recent times. But 
back then in 95, 96, you had the Ray Montgomery's, we had the Derek Anderson's, we had all these types of players who were, de- were defenders and they were decent defenders, they were worse, but went and done their jobs. But they would say they were never flashy, you know what I mean? They went and done their job. That's what a good player does, he's never flashy, he does his job. And that's, that's not, I guess, what, again, to what area of the part that you're in, you've got a job to do. And if they keep it, if they keep it tight at the back, then it gives us a chance to take the chances that I'm taking up front. Defending's never a flashy art. Defending should never be that, either. A defender defends first and foremost. That's his job. And that, that's what he's taught to do. If he needs to go into Rosette, he's into Rosette. You know what I mean? So that's that's the way defenders are. And we had decent defenders at Kilmarnock at that point and that time. So And they could use the ball as well. But defending first and foremost, well, everybody knows Ray Montgomery, 20 odd years, 25 years. Pitcher, last inch tackles, that was his famous, that's his famous line. Because that's what he was great at. And that's what he kept us in games. Mm. Sometimes he was just doing that. But did they get any recognition for it? No. Nobody would give the, the, the defenders any recognition. Apart from people in his own team, or maybe some fans in the sideline that see, or he's done brilliant again today. His defensive display has been brilliant. But most people just want to see people scoring goals and winning games by scoring more goals than opposition. But defending's an art, and I feel that's been taken out again. The decent defenders are years gone by. Do we see many of them now? I don't think so. Maybe you wouldn't have thought like this earlier. You, you would be focused on the team and then your own performance. But did you ever look at the opposition team and think, I'd rather they weren't playing today? Talking about one of the defenders from the other teams. No. I always hope that they're the best, strikers out against, uh, best defenders out against me. It makes me a be- better player. It makes me work harder. It makes me think more. It makes me hope I, I can... I can not make a mug of the defender I'm playing against, but make sure the defender knows that he's in, he's thinking more about me than he is about MDLs. And he knows that I'm coming, I'm coming to play against him. I, I, I used to switch it the other way. I said to myself, uh, he needs to worry about me, I don't need to worry about him. So you'd want to see like a Richard Goff on the team lines, for example? Oh, I oh, loved it. Loved it. Any, the bigger name, the better that was on the team list. You wanted to play against the biggest and the best, no matter who it was. He used to have running battles with all different, all different centre-backs for all different clubs. But he had the, the respect because they knew that you were you were a decent player and they'd need to give you respect. So he gave them respect back. But every time I turned up, no, I wanted to make sure that I was better than the guy who was masking me. It's not, it never worked out that way all the time. It can't work out that time. But when personal battles come on the part, you're fighting your cause for your team. You're always, always wanting to play against the best players, no matter. And I was fortunate to do it down in England, up in Scotland, for years. And, and as you got older, the more respect that you get off for other teams and other players. I guess this would be a nice time to talk, talking about the respect of other teams and other players. I'd like to talk about the Scottish Cup final of 1997. But first I'd like to ask, do you ever get bored talking about it? I was asked a question, I think it was a... I think it was the 25th anniversary or whatever. No, and I, I came to the point of when the Scottish Cup came around, I said it's about time that we moved on and it was about time that another commander team won it. We've had our time. We've had 25 years or 26 years of, of whatever, of personal satisfaction. And for a club to move on and a club to, to get better, we're, we're, we're wanting to see them go and winning things. It was great 2012 to watch them winning the League Cup. It'd be great again to see them win the Scottish Cup. 
don't get me wrong, it was great, it's fantastic at the time, it was fantastic for years. We'll go down to Fort Lauder, you know what I mean? We'll all be legends of the club. But I'm 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 one of these people, let's move on, let's let's get the next generation going win a cup. I mean, let's get the next lot in to win a cup. So they can feel the adulation that we've been given over the years. And don't get me wrong, yeah, every now and then it's great to talk about it, it's great to still be recognised for it. But I would love to see Kamarnock win the Scottish Cup in the near future again, so these next guys can be legends again. I thought that maybe not talking so much about the cup final might be something that you might quite like to do because I think because it's a lot of focus because you scored 72 goals for Kilmarnock, a couple of hundred goals across your career, Scotland and England. But I think because Kilmarnock fans remember you so so specially, that goal does tend to come up quite a lot. I've mentioned that in time going by. I felt it's great to be thought of one game. Don't be wrong. It's, it's wonderful to still be thought of one game. But going to Europe, playing in Europe, Saving relegation in the face and, and staying up. These are things that a lot of people maybe forget what the club done over that five or that five or six year period I was there. And it was it was it was getting down. Don't be wrong. As you, you always wonder if you thought I'll just for one goal, but every now and then, you know, when you see some of the highlights back, you know, and, oh god, I done that, I done this, I done that, you know. But to be honest with you, it was a start of being a special time to mm. play at Kamarnock. And it was just, yeah, you want to be thought of just more than, than the one goal. I'd like you to think about it as the player you were in 1997 rather than rather than now. It's the last day of the season. Gary Holt scored that goal to keep Kilmarnock in the top league. Thinking back, if you'd been offered league safety but no cup win, would you have taken it? Oh, it's a hard one. Oh, nobody's ever asked me that one before. Uh, for the... For the from a personal point of view, I think you would need to have league safety. I know that's given up a big cup and you're doing this and you're doing that, but if you're not being... I'm trying not to be selfish here, because if you're selfish, any selfish person would have went, oh no, cup because I scored a winner, blah, blah, blah. No, you've got to think of the all-round team aspect here. You've got to think of the club aspect. You've got to think of people's jobs aspect. If you did go down, no, no, Gary Holt's maybe goal was more important than my goal in the cup final if you think it's about that way I think I've, 9 players out of 10 would have said maybe the same thing and if you get the, the odd person that would say no it's all about me then it, nah it doesn't work as I say because you need so many players in a team and you need so many people to make a club work and you've got to think the consequences of as I say the club aspect and things like that maybe at that time what could have happened if you went down and it was first division again no, I think the Premier League status. Every player wants to play in the, in the highest stage that they can in Scotland's the Premier League. So, no, you, you always want to stay in the Premier League and play in the Premier League. That's the biggest part where I've won in the Cup and won the Cup was at Ibrox. You've won the Cup anywhere that you want, but it was never done in your, your national stadium. And that was a big thing. That's a personal point of view. But that's the only thing that I, that I miss about the cup final was was that part there, which is, it would be at Hamden because that's your national stadium, and that's where every thinks every cup final's played is their national stadium. Apart from that one, year, I think was it one year, two years to play at your national stadium is a fantastic thing. But uh, some things, you know, I mean, go for you. Some things don't. It was a special time, the the late 90s and, and into the 2000s for Kilmarnock, it was a really special time. 1997-98, the team's flying, you finished fourth in the end. What was 
the difference? Because it was largely largely the same squad. Can you put your finger on how things changed? Maybe continuity. With it being the same squad. Uh, again, another hard question. Uh, if you think of continuity, then you think of, again, confidence more than anything else. Even though we did change a manager, we never really, as you're saying, the continuity, never changed many players. We brought in a fantastic player, Pat Nevin. A fantastic player. We brought in Kevin McGowan, great centre-back. He's just one or two players just to tweak the, the, the team that we had. It's just a great thing. Jim Matintask, well, he just go on board for the cup for the, the end of the season before the cup final. So there wasn't, there wasn't changing that many players. You know what I mean? So if, they, if they're just used to each other, if they know each other's strengths and weaknesses, and again, it gets down to enjoyment. If you're winning and you're doing well, you're playing in Europe, the club's profile goes up, the player's profile goes up, more confidence comes in the back of that. And again, it's a feel-good factor at the club. So, and these things just drive drive the club on more than anything else. You played for the Scotland B team in 1998 as well. That's right, yeah. This was in the run-up to France 98. Did you get a feeling that there was a space up for grabs? No. No, never. No. Scotland did the establishment. I mean, they did establish strikers of... Kevin Gallagher, they had the uh, Coiste and provincial teams. It's very hard to, for a player to get in uh, a Scotland score from a, a provincial side at that point in time. Very, very unrealistic. I was fortunate to play in the B internationals, which was great. Enjoyed it. I actually got injured in the one against Norway that I was out for the last six six games of the season, I think. Over at the end of that season, I had a, a cracked rib. And that happened at Tynecastle. But it was great. Any any chance you had to play for your country at any level would have been fantastic. But I'd never, ever, ever had asked, well, knew that I would maybe get in before the established strikers that were there at the time and could be doing a good job. Do you think that when the B internationals are coming, would that have been Craig Brown looking at the players who, if, for example, one of the established strikers was out, he would know who he could call on? Maybe, maybe so. Craig Brown knew... He knew that, that he knew the players that, that played in Scottish football for years and knew what they could do. Maybe to try them at a different levels, maybe a good thing, putting the B International on was a fantastic thing to do. And for him, yeah, maybe for him personally to go and see that, you know, I mean, and see what we could do at the internationals. But I always thought, no, the established strikers were there and they were never getting moved. If maybe somebody had taken an injury, maybe so, but I never ever thought about it. I used to have my holidays booked every year, mate. I mean, so. <laughs> I'd like to quickly think about that, I say quickly, it was such a great season, but the 1998-99 season, and it was another top four finish, but at Christmas, you were vying with Rangers at the top of the league. That's right. I think the mentality comes in, maybe, I a lot of folk talk to about, I talk about McCoy and Durant coming in, and, they, and Gordon Marshall, and they bring, as it's an old firm thing that they bring in, that you can be at, at, all, at all costs, and I don't know, it's a mentality that, that they brought to the dressing room, do you know what I mean? Of you're winning, you're winning, you don't care, you're winning. You need strong people and strong characters. You know what I mean? And that's what that, that's what the dressing room was becoming. You had strong people in the dressing room. You had the coins, the Giants, the Marshalls, myself, Mark Riley's. You had people that really, really experienced players. And that, that was just the mentality that we had in the dressing room at that point in time. Because we'd been through a lot. And as I say, the, the confidence that just starts to build and build. And, and these two guys, these three people come in and just build it even more.
you're now working with Alan Robertson. Alan brought me in in what was that, 2005 to Kilmarnock Youth System. I was working with Alan. I was an under-17 coach for 10 years on the pro youth side. Alan moved upstairs to the under-20 job in uh, 10 years, so I decided to take a break. And then the next thing was Alan took over at Bonington Thistle and asked me to come in as an assistant. And so we've been there now for nearly four years. And so that's been coaching so far. So we've two have been together now for nearly 15 years. I've been junior management with Falthouse, mm-hmm. I went with the Buffs down in Ayrshire. And then I was brought into the pro youth system and then enjoyed it for 10 years. Met some great players, Rory's, we killed Alan had a great policy of bringing players through, through the years. And it was a good time. I enjoyed it. That was a very, very difficult part, especially under 17 level. All these kids have maybe been in the system for maybe six, seven years. They've not put a foot wrong, but they're just no good enough to make the next step. And that was the, that was a hard point, and I want to tell people that. And you're actually shattering a lot of young kids' dreams. And it's not a very nice place to be sometimes when you're having to tell people. Not just for the player himself, but for what the family put into the years of dedication of bringing the kid there, being there every week every training session, being there for every game. Just think of family, how much time they spend doing that for their kids. It's unbelievable. And that was a hard point of being an under-17 coach. That must be quite draining, but on a personal level. You must find that must be quite challenging. It was challenging. As I say, you're killing somebody's, somebody's dream. And I was fortunate, it never happened to me until I was 35 when I get released at Kamala. <laughs> <laughs> but apart from that, it was, it's horrible sometimes. Horrible having to take people, and it's not a very nice thing that myself or Alan Robertson had to do. Mm. And and Alan had to do it year in, year out for 25, 30 years. So the enjoyment must outweigh the negative side of it. Well, well, if you can see players that you maybe helped in their development, and it's just a help. Now, I remember at the front, under 17 level, at the front three of Chris Johnson, Matt Kennedy, and Barry Mackay. Mm. That was my front line, and it was an unbelievable front line that they had at that moment in time. And you see now, well, do you think you had a, hopefully had a hand in maybe Matt's development of making his Northern Ireland debut the other week there and seeing him away at Aberdeen and Everton and here, there and everywhere. And you see Barry Mackay's playing for Rangers or, or down at Swansea or, or whoever. And you see maybe your Greg Kilty's scoring goals or you see your Rory McKenzie's, who was one of my first ones that really came through was Rory and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So, and hopefully, you know I mean? I had, a, I had a helping hand, just a helping hand. Alan makes the decisions at the end of the day, but if I had a helping hand to help them be better, that was my job, to try to make them better, to be a better player and be a better person. That was my job. Paul Wright's place in the hearts of Kilmarnock fans is well earned. Huge thanks to Paul for talking me through his time at the club. And we'll hear from him again in a future episode on the European Games of the 1990s. Killer Histories is made by Right Half Communications in partnership with the Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association and the Killy Trust. For this episode, thank you to Paul Clark for setting up the interview. Do check out the new website, www.killerhistories.com and follow the series on Twitter and Facebook, at Killer Histories. The theme music, Clear Progress, by Scott Music.com is used under free Creative Commons licence.
This interview was recorded in February 2021. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time.